0: For the past 13 Sundays, we've been studying the parables of Jesus. And before continuing on in the series, I thought it might do us good to review a bit some of the basic principles that we tried to establish at the beginning of the series. And looking out, I realized that some of you weren't here that first sermon. And so for you, this may not be review as much as uh, some new information, even though I've been mentioning it as we've gone through. We saw at the beginning that scholars tell us that the parables make up more than one-third of the teachings of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. And yet, Matthew tells us something. We find it in Mark as well. But in Matthew 13, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowds in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. It's a remarkable statement that Jesus only used parables when speaking to the crowds. But Matthew follows it up with something I think that is equally surprising and thought-provoking. The next verse says, So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. This quotation is taken from Psalm 78, a mosque of Asaph. Asaph was a Levite. He was the director of music under King David. He wrote 12 psalms. And when you do a word count or whatever what he wrote in fact puts him i would say near the top of those who had written scripture he wrote more than peter or james jude jonah amos micah most of the minor prophets asaph wrote psalms but matthew refers to him as a prophet and i find that interesting and what does this prophet asaph tells us tell us well in looking ahead to the ministry of the coming messiah that he would speak in parables, and that he would reveal things previously unknown through parables. So suddenly, the appearance of parables in the Gospels take on a new dimension. They are, in fact, the fulfillment of prophecy regarding the ministry of the Messiah. To my way of thinking, stories become more important than many Christians might imagine. As I said when we began this series, I believe that stories are part of what it means to be human. It isn't simply a Christian thing, it's a human thing. Children like stories, and therefore oftentimes we think of stories as being basically childish. A child will say, tell me a story. They don't say, tell me some facts. Um, And I think this may be why we think that once we reach adulthood, then stories in a sense are beyond us. That it is now, as an adult, we are to speak in terms of propositions and abstractions and principles. And I think this affects the way that we read the Bible. The Old Testament is oftentimes seen as a collection of stories. And therefore, it's more suitable for children uh, in Bible story books or in Sunday school stories. Um, The New Testament, on the other hand, is, is more theoretical, more theological, philosophical. At least when we get to the epistles. And I don't know if anyone sort of breathed a sigh of relief today when Zib began reading to us from Romans. Okay, now we're into the good stuff because, you know, at first we had the Gospels and Acts and it's all these stories of things that happened. Um, Let's stop and think a minute. The Bible is the revelation of who God is. And God chose to reveal himself through stories. We might prefer Theology. philosophy, ideas, theoretical discourse, formulas, principles, dialogue, if you wish. But we must remember that God chose stories. And when God came in human form, in the person of Jesus, as he went around teaching, he chose to communicate in the form of stories and parables. One thing I mentioned that first Sunday is that apart from personal experience, Stories are the quickest way to learning, but we don't think that way. We think, you know, give us the formula, give us the principle, and then we'll be on our way because we will have learned what it is that we should learn. What is a parable? We've been looking at parables. What is a parable? It is a narrative which is told for an ulterior purpose. That is to say, it is a story that is being told, but it has an agenda. There is something that the, the one who is telling the story is seeking to convey. Um, Kierkegaard said that it is a form of indirect communication intended to deceive the hearer into truth. Which is sort of a strange way to put it. But the, the person thinks that they're listening to a story, a parable, but then as we've seen so often at the end, there is that great reversal and then suddenly the listener is shocked into realizing that what they thought, in fact, was wrong. An important aspect of parables is surprise. But for many of us who are familiar with the New Testament and the Gospels, perhaps raised in church or in a Christian home, we know these parables so often that, or so well that oftentimes we miss the surprise that comes near the end. Um, When we look at the parables of Jesus, there are certain characteristics that we noted when we began. First of all, they tend to be brief. Now, having said that, the parables we looked at the last two Sundays and the one we will look at today and the Lord willing next Sunday are among the longer ones. Uh, Only nine parables have ten verses or more, and we happen to be studying them right now. The parables tend to be, if you wish, thin. They are brief. Uh, There are no unnecessary details. And that's why, except for the parable we studied last week, there are no names. Last week we saw the rich man and Lazarus, but otherwise we aren't given any names because... If you're given a name, then suddenly you're like, oh yeah, I know somebody named that, and then your mind goes drifting off into something. You're simply told a very basic and a very bare-bones story. They are simple, and yet there's a certain symmetry that comes to them. It's interesting, when you read the parables, if you were blocking it in terms of theater, you only have two people on the scene at any one time, or two groups of people. It's never three people. You don't have... Three people talking to each, it's always two people. Um, I think it makes it easier, in a sense, for us to follow. The parables focus on humans. With the exception of the parable of the mustard seed, they all involve humans. They take descriptions from everyday life. Um, Now, some of them are realistic and others are less so. Some involve hyperbole. Um, We will look at today... A man who gives each one of his servants a mina, which is three and a half months' wages. That's reasonable. But when we saw in the parable of the unforgiving servant, uh, he owed 10,000 talents, which was the equivalent of 200,000 years of work. Well, that's not realistic. Okay, But it is for the purpose of hyperbole to show how much the man was forgiven. The parables are engaging. They are told to be interesting. Even though they are bare bones, they are not boring, they are not uninteresting, they are not something. here, let me convey the truth in in a very basic form. They, in fact, engage our interest. And so we find Jesus saying at different points, what do you think? And then he will tell us a story. Or at the end, he will say, which one? Which one was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? And oftentimes he will say, if you have ears, you need to listen. Listen to what is being said. Not all the parables have the elements of reversal, but many of them do. It is the tax collector who goes home justified, not the Pharisee. This is not what the listeners would have expected. And with most parables, you have to wait till the end. If you only stop about halfway through and you say, "Okay, well, this represents this and this represents that, uh, you will miss something very important. I think that's particularly true in the parable we look at today. If you if you leave out the last verse, you're going to miss something incredibly important to what Jesus is saying. Two more things. The parables are told in a context. And I've stressed this over and over again. They are not universal stories. Okay, So um, everyone knows the parable of the Good Samaritan. But don't forget the context. The question is, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story. It isn't just, oh, here's a universal story for all time. We have to see it within its particular context. And then lastly, and this I have stressed over and over again, the parables of Jesus are theocentric. They are God-centered. Okay? The purpose of the parables is to change our behavior. But it doesn't mean that the parables are about us. I think that's a fundamental mistake that we may make. They're not about us. They are about God. And so the parables tell us about God, about the kingdom of God, and about the new reality that the kingdom of God is bringing here to this earth. If we think the parables are about us, we will come up with an entirely different meaning or interpretation, I believe, than what Jesus intended. The parables are a revelation of who God is and what God's kingdom is like, more than it is a description of the listeners, the original listeners, or we ourselves, or what we are supposed to do as disciples. Today, I want to look at the parable that begins in verse number 11 of chapter 19. Um, if your Bible has headings, it is called the parable of the Ten Minas. Um, I would prefer to call it the parable of the returning king because I think that is what the main theme is in this parable. The Lord willing, next Sunday, we will look at the parable of the talents that is found in Matthew chapter 25. You may remember earlier in this series, we looked at the parables of the great banquet. Luke had a version, Matthew had a version. And the question is, uh, is it the same parable and Matthew and Luke talked to different people or their memories were off and so they told it in different ways? Not at all. I think that the parables have some things in common, but they are told in different contexts and therefore we should not be surprised that they have significant differences between them. Um, You may notice that in the parables, as we've gone through them, I've tended to stick to the Gospel of Luke. I don't know if you've noticed that. We've studied a couple in Matthew, but I've stayed for the most part in Luke. Um, and so it would seem that when we come to this parable, we would stay in Luke. Yeah, but there's something else. The parable that you and I are familiar with, I think, is the parable of the talents. I think we know that. Fairly well. This one I don't think we know so well, and it has a couple reversals in it that might give us a little kind of theological whiplash. We're not expecting this because we're more familiar with what we find in Matthew. And so I thought it would be good to start here with the unfamiliar before we go or return to the familiar. By the way, it doesn't help that in Matthew's account it's called the parable of the talents. And when we hear that word, We're like, oh, yeah, I know what a talent is. Um, I looked it up. A special ability that allows someone to do something well. Okay. But here, Amina, that's less familiar to us, and it is, in fact, a a type of currency. I think this is the good place to start. Uh, Listen or follow along as I read, beginning in verse number 11. And it is an extended uh, parable. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, Yermina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, Yermina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you, because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But for those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. What is the context of this parable? Well, there are a number of things for us to consider. Um, by the way, if you doubted that context was important, look at verse number 11. It starts out by saying that while they were listening to this, what is the this? What is the this that he's talking about? Because that sets the stage for the parable that Jesus is going to give. So we need to back up to the passage that comes before it. And it is the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus is traveling on his way to Jerusalem, and he passes through Jericho. And it is there in Jericho that he meets Zacchaeus, a man considered a sinner by his townmates. But he invites Jesus to come to his house. Jesus goes much to the distress of the people. They began to mutter, we are told. And what we find is the conversion of Zacchaeus. In verse number 9, Jesus proclaims, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. He continues, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It may be this last statement that caused people to think that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. It's unlikely, though, because, man, the kingdom of God is coming and they let in people like Zacchaeus. The kingdom of God is obviously something different than what they imagine it would be. But we do know that Jesus is in Jericho. And verse 11 tells us that the, he was on his way to Jerusalem and they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So maybe we need to back up a bit more. And if you go back to the end of chapter 18, the last story that is told there is of a blind man. He hears a commotion and he says, what's going on? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And so he calls out, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. Then verse 39. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near Jesus, asked him, What do you want me to do for you? I'm always struck by this, that Jesus doesn't just simply assume. He always asks people, Okay, what is it that you want? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and following, followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus healed a blind man and the people praised God. I'm struck by the fact that when we look at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, when he first speaks in his hometown of Nazareth, there's a quite a different reaction to it. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news spread, news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is in Luke 4. And on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The time of the Messiah has come. The restoring of sight of the blind. And how did his townmates respond? They tried to kill him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. One of the things with Luke's Gospels is there's a real sort of symmetry of bookends. And so what we see at the beginning, we don't see at the end. Same thing, people being healed. This is the promise of the Messiah. And now we see in chapter 18, in fact, That he has healed a blind man. And now the people are praising God. Maybe this is it. The kingdom of God is, he's going to Jerusalem. If he's going to be, if he's going to bring in the kingdom, it's going to be in Jerusalem. So now they think the kingdom of God is going to appear and it's going to appear at once. Indeed, Jesus is going to Jerusalem and the turning point of human history will occur. Jesus will be put to death. He will be buried, but he will be raised from the dead. It isn't what they expected, and so Jesus tells them this parable. Jesus knows that he is one week away from his death. He will be rejected by his own people. He will be deserted by his followers. And in that context, he tells them the parable of the returning king we focus on the minas or the talents in Matthew 25. I think Jesus has something else in mind. The parable opens, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. To the people of Jericho, they knew this story. This seems to be Jesus telling a historical story for his own purposes. You see, in that time, there were kings all throughout the Roman Empire, but they had to get their kingship from the emperor. So if somebody wanted to be king, they would go to Rome to the emperor and say, please make me king of this particular era, or area. In 4 BC, which is the time that Jesus was born, Herod the Great died. And his son Archelaus wanted to be put in his place. So Archelaus made the trip to Rome. But so did a delegation of Jews. And they said to the emperor, we don't want this man to be our king. The story Jesus is telling is all too familiar. It only happened a beer 30 years earlier. They remember it. Um, Archelaus, by the way, was a cruel man. He was unfit to rule. At least 3,000 people were massacred in in Jerusalem uh, during one Passover. Uh, This was not a good man. So this is a story that people know. Now Jesus adds to it. Before the man leaves to go to Rome, if you wish, to be made king, he calls ten of his servants and he gives each of them one mina each. Amina is 100 denarii, that is 100 days wages, so about three and a half months uh, worth of wages. Now, you'll notice that there are differences between this and the story of the or the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. The amount of money is quite different. Um, Amina, as I said, is three and a half months. A talent is significantly more. A talent is 20 years wages. So three and a half months versus 20 years, a significant difference. The number of servants is different. Here we have ten. In Matthew 25 we have three. And the distribution is different. And again, this is, I, we're more familiar with the talents that one guy got five, one got two, one got one. Here, each one got the same. Each servant was given one Mina. Now this has provoked discussion among commentators and scholars. What does the Mina represent? What did the talent represent? Well, the talent, yeah, we we have a word in English for that. And so some people have more ability than others. So, yeah, one would be given five talents. Somebody would be given two, another only one. Uh, but what does it mean that everyone was given the same? Um, some have said that, in fact, this might refer to the gospel, that everyone is given the gospel. Um, and th- so, in that sense, everyone is equal. Um, as appealing as that might be, what do you do with the servant at the end, whose one mina is taken away from him? I think we've, we we miss the point if we focus on what was given. I think what we need to focus on is the one who is giving it. Because he is the master, he is the king, he is the one to whom they must give account. I maintain that the parables are theocentric. And so the point is not what is given, but the one who is giving it to the servants. And he has authority, and when he comes back, they have to give an account to him. That's the point of the parable. We somehow managed to make it about us and what we've been given, rather than God, who is the one who has given all things to us. In Matthew's version, the master entrusts his wealth to his servants. Um, here they are given very specific instructions. And for those of you familiar with the Gospels, I don't know if you caught that. But he, the instructions are, put this money to work until I come back. In Matthew, no instructions are given. Here the instructions are very specific. You are to put this to work. Verse 15 is crucial because this is when he comes back. He was made king, however, in spite of the delegation, and returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. He has authority. Now they must give an account to him. He now returns as king, and he sends for the servants for each one of them to give an account. Um, He has the authority to do it. It's his money, and now he is king. There are ten servants, but we're only told about three. The first one says, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. The second, Sir, your mina has earned five more. And the third, here is your mina. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. Um, I don't want to make too much of this. um, But it's a thing that jumped out to me as I was preparing this. Is that the first and the second servants in this parable describe the mina as having earned ten more or five more. They don't say, I earned ten more or I gained five more. In Matthew's parable, the servants do say that. That I gained five more talents. I gained two more. Here, the servants, I think, are marked by humility. They don't say, oh, look at what I've done. It is almost as though they are saying, this mina magically went from one to ten. Obviously it did because of their efforts, but they don't take any credit for it. They simply say, Yermina has earned ten more, or has earned five more. But the king gives them the credit. You have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Um, The abilities of the servants obviously are different, but that is not touched on in this parable. Rather, what we find is that the reward is connected to what they, in fact, have earned. Um, the principle we find here in verse number 18, I'm sorry, is from chapter 18. If you would look at chapter 18, verse number 10. Um, this was the parable of the, the dishonest uh, steward, one that we really struggled with. But in verse number 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much and whoever is dishonest with very little can will also be dishonest with very, with much. So the principle is we start out small because that's who we find out who you are. And if you can be trusted with this then you can be trusted with a lot. But if you can't be trusted with very little then obviously you will not be able to be trusted with a lot. So going back to chapter 19, verse 17, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Because they were faithful in small matters, he entrusts them with greater things. By the way, I think we should recognize that there is a tremendous jump from what they were given and what they give back to the reward. You have three and a half months worth of wages and some through his investing, his buying and selling, that one becomes ten. Okay? That's, what, 35 months' worth of wages. But suddenly, he's put in charge of ten cities. I mean, the reward seems disproportionate uh, to what the servant had, in fact, accomplished. And certainly worth thinking about. What about the third servant? Well, the third servant is convinced that the master is not a nice person. That, in fact, he takes what is not his, he reaps where he has not sowed. And the, and the king says, listen, I will judge you by your own words. If, in fact, you think I'm a rascal, don't you think you should have done whatever you could to make sure I would not be angered when I return? The third servant failed because he had a bad view of his master. This is why he failed. We might like to say that it was something, maybe his inability, maybe he wasn't good with money, uh, you know how that's in, in gardening. Some people have green thumbs and other people have brown thumbs, you know, they kill everything they touch. Um, maybe he was one of those kind of people that with money he just wasn 't any good. No, because that then makes the parable about us. The reality is he had a bad view of his master. and because of that, he made very bad decisions. One of the things that Jesus does throughout his ministry is to seek to present a correct view of God, not only in his teaching, but in his actions, in his living. He is God in the flesh. And we find him time after time, particularly with the religious leaders, trying to correct their view of God. With the Pharisee who goes to the temple to pray, it's all about him. Where it is the tax collector who recognizes that God is a God of mercy, and he calls out for his mercy. If you have a bad view of God, it will cause you to make faulty uh, decisions, bad choices. Because if you think about it, if in fact this noble who became a king was a hard man, wouldn't that cause you to act differently than this wicked servant did? Wouldn't you put the money to work? Invest it. Even all, If all you do is put it in the bank, put it with investors, and it'll just gain, gain a little interest. At least it gains something. This servant is condemned by his own reasoning. And the consequence is that he loses the one mina. Now, unlike Matthew's version, there is no physical punishment that is meted out to the servant. Um, The matter ends. He's called a wicked servant. Well, that's not good. But what he has is taken away. Um, But now comes the first of two twists at the end of this parable. This actually has two. The first is found in verse number 24, uh, 24 through 26. Then then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now, living when and where we do, this smacks of the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. After all, what does this one servant who has ten minas, why does he need one more? Why does he need one more? And I must confess, in preparing the sermon, this, this was the part that I anticipated struggling with. Until I realized something. The mina is not given to the servant as his possession. The nobleman who became a king didn't say... Here, this is yours. Let's see what you can do with this. It's yours. No, it still belongs to the king. So when the king says, take the one away from the wicked servant and give it to the one who has ten, he's not saying give it to him as his, as his possession. He's saying something that makes perfect sense. Listen, if this guy can take one and make ten, then that's someone I want to be give that to, not as his own, but that's something I want to entrust to him, he will know what to do with it. I think where we make the mistake is we think that, oh, this was his, it was his own possession, and this terrible, terrible king took it away from him, and now you have a rich servant here, and he gives it to the rich servant. Not at all. He takes from someone who does not do what he should with this. It's the king's money. And he gives it to someone who knows what to do with the king's money. And just think in in human terms. If if there was someone here in the church that was good at investing money and someone who wasn't, and then you came upon some money, wouldn't you invest it, wouldn't you give it to the person who's good at investing? You're not giving it to them. You're simply saying, please invest this for me. And thus, the one who who didn't do anything with it, he loses what he has. And the one who now has ten cities... One could say he could hardly be bothered with another mina, but the king knows this is the guy who knows how to take care of money. What is given to them is for them to put to use. So this is the first reversal. But then the second one comes in verse number 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. The listeners may have forgotten about those people. And in fact, it seems almost an aside. We're so focused on the minas, the servants and given, and now they have to give an account. We forgot that this guy went away to be made king. And the delegation went after him saying to the emperor, we don't want this guy to be our king. That's not the end of the story. The end of the story is he comes back talks to his servants, and then he says, okay, the people who did not want me to be king put them to death in front of me. The listeners may have forgotten. I don't think they did, though, because the story of Archelaus was still, I think, fresh in their thinking. Uh, They remembered this wicked king. In any case, the parable is not and they lived happily ever after. It ends with, put these people to death in front of me. It is an execution. The cruelty of which might shock us. But it presents to us the reality of rebellion and the appropriate response to rebellion. There is more to this, and the Lord willing, we will look at it further next Sunday uh, when we look at the parable found in Matthew. But there are two things that I want to say before we leave Like the parable with the rich man and Lazarus, people oftentimes take that parable to say, okay, here's a theology of hell. That Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham and the rich man was tormented and they could see each other. I don't think that we should develop a theology of hell from that parable. People see this parable as a theology of heaven. That if we are God's people, God has committed things to us, and then one day when we get to God at the final judgment, he will then reward us accordingly. I don't think that that's I would not use this parable to develop that theology. True enough, in First Corinthians three, uh, Paul talks about rewards. Um, but I, I I'm very hesitant and I would discourage someone from saying here previous parable we have a theology of hell, and now here we have a theology of heaven. Now, I think Jesus is telling us about God, who God is, God, a God of grace, but then also a God who has authority and to whom one day we will give an account. But again, the Lord willing, we will look at this further next Sunday. And one last thing. I don't know if it struck you as I'm reading this, but, One could make a case that Jesus is, in fact, talking about the Jewish people in this parable. That within seven days, you will have people saying, in essence, to Pilate, We don't want this man to be our king. We don't want this man to be our king. But then he goes to a far country and he is made king, as Peter proclaims on the day of Pentecost. And one day he will return. And there will be judgment. And again, the Lord willing, we will look at this further next Sunday. Let's pray together. Father, you are the giver of all good gifts. And you are the king of this world. I thank you for the parables that Jesus told. And yet confess that oftentimes our thinking which is so self-centered, tries to make them about us. Here we see the authority of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who's been made King, and one day to whom we must give an account. I thank you for your mercy, for your patience with us. But may we not forget that one day we will have to give an account to you. For all that you have given us. What we have done with it. If we have been good stewards. I thank you for this day that we could come together to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please and we'll sing the doxology together.